How should we look at creation? How should we understand it? Is there such things as brute facts? That is, facts that are facts without relationship to other facts. What is this thing we call reality? What is it? If you were to, to describe reality, how do you know it's that? What is the relationship between the perceiver and the perceived? When I look at the stars above, how should I interpret the fact of their existence? Better yet, when I look at human beings at various societies throughout the world, including my own right here in America, how should I interpret their existence? How should I interpret their behaviors? What should I think about their social structures? As a Christian, should I expect God-hating, rebellious, wicked pagans to build social structures that are aimed for the glory of God and filled with the love of Christ? Why do so many Christians feel that that's a, a good and right expectation? What about this? What is equality? I mean, when social justice advocates argue for equality, we hear, we hear a lot about equality today in our society, and we've, we've heard about it off and on throughout the years. What is equality? When they're arguing for equality, what are they arguing for? What are they trying to get at exactly? I mean, we hear a lot of these terms, and to be quite frank, a lot, of that, a lot of these expressions, a lot of these arguments, a lot of these propositions that are put out there are quite nebulous. They could be interpreted a number of ways. The old saying, the devil is in the details, truly applies here. Is utopian equality even possible in a fallen, God-hating, God-cursed sin-filled world. My name is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant. This is, no, today is November 30th, as we head into the month of Christmas. Now, the source for today's episode comes from an article over at the, the Aquila Report. I take the four core tenets of contemporary critical theory outlined by Bradley Levinson's article entitled, Does Critical Theory Matter for the Evangelical Church to Act for Social Justice? A response to Neil Shenvey, or Shenvey, I don't know who the guy is. I don't know who Neil is, so I apologize if I have mispronounced his name. What I am concerned about is not the players, in this area, but the four core tenets in light of the revelation of God in Scripture. Hence, my reason for asking these questions. All right, let's jump into today's podcast. If you're listening to this, 
Take a look at the first tenet, first core tenet of contemporary critical theory. Use that interchangeably in your mind with critical race theory, although critical contemporary critical theory is more encompassing than just race. The principles and ideology is really all the same. And that's what we're talking about today, is the ideology. The question that we're asking specifically is, is contemporary critical theory consistent with biblical Christianity? And in order to answer that question, we shine the light of Scripture on the foundational beliefs and premises of this theory. And the first one is namely this, society is divided into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, gender identity, etc. All right. Society is divided in... Now, look. <clears throat> I said before, and I've said this many times on this program, that the... the the duty of the Christian epistemically is to interpret reality in front of us, creation, human society, and so forth, to, in, to interpret the things that we observe in the world in a way that is consistent with God's prior interpretation of the created order, which includes everything, the physical universe and all the human beings on the planet and the social structures that those human beings put in place. Everything in the human experience should be interpreted according to God's revelation. God is telling us what it is. Okay? He, he told us in his word what it is. That is, at least the components of it that he wanted us to know. Um, he didn't tell us everything. He told us some things. He told us some things very clearly. He told us other things that are not as clear. Okay, so as we talk, as we look at and think through oppressor groups, classes, people groups, race, gender, sexuality, male, female, so forth, one of the things that is overlooked very often in the churches is this incident that took place all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, prior to Abraham, after Noah and the flood. So between Noah and Abraham, the human race experienced another extremely significant event in its history. And that particular event, I think, has a very strong relationship to the social justice movement, the critical theories, critical theory itself, 
interpretation of the human race, interpretation of human society and culture, and so forth. Uh, it has a much stronger relationship with these things, or a much closer relationship with these things than we, we might think. So let's go to Genesis chapter 11, and I'll start with verse 4. Oh, I'm in James. So let me jump over there really quickly. Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. And this is a big deal. That's extremely significant in A.N.E. culture, ancient Near Eastern culture. A name. Uh, very, very significant to make for yourself a name. Even much more significant than what we think uh, of it uh, as today, even though we do place a high significance on it. In ancient Near Eastern culture, your name was everything. Otherwise, he goes. the text goes on to say, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So, first of all, the idea is that's bad, right? You can see in the text... Let's build a tower that'll reach up into heaven. We want to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll end up being scattered over the face of the whole earth, which is bad. Okay? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now... Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they are not or so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused fused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This text informs the Christian on how he or she should see diversity on the planet. Diversity on the planet. We we. we People talk about diversity, and they talk, they talk about diversity in the kingdom, and they talk about how wonderful and how awesome it is, and how fantastic it is that there are diverse groups. And I often sit back and wonder, gee, have they read Genesis chapter 11 and really come to grips with why this kind of diversity in the human race exists to begin with? It wasn't a blessing. According to Genesis chapter 11, it was the judgment of God. It was, it, it's a curse from God. Diversity is a curse from God. It's not an awesome thing uh, to be embraced, but it is a thing that if we had, if humanity had been humble and dependent on God instead of autonomous and arrogant, then this diversity wouldn't exist as it does today. Now, all right. 
a lot of people just don't think about it that way. God's goal at Babel was to create disunity, disharmony, chaos in the human race as a counter to its autonomous arrogance. Okay, that's how we should look at these classes and groups of human beings that exist on the planet. This is the product of divine judgment. It's right. It's just. It's good that God is displaying his righteousness through cursing human beings with diversity. Now, diversity can be redeemed, and it has been. Okay, so don't freak out. We're going we're gonna to come back around to the positive aspects now of diversity later in the podcast. Don't freak out. But um, I'm saying this to, dri to drive home as clearly as I can that the state of affairs as they exist today exists as a result of God's judgment. This diversity that we see, the differences that we see, the chaos, the disharmony, the disunity, is God's judgment on humanity, okay? The attempt to overcome these things outside of the one answer, the one solution for them, autonomously, is evil. And that's what human beings are trying to do. That's what critical theory is trying to do, sort of. I think it's more devious than that. But if you give it the benefit of the doubt and just assume, let's pretend that there's no really bad things inside of critical theory, no bad motives, so to speak, no, no um, you know, bait-and-switch kind of stuff. Even if you make that assumption, you still have to land on the fact that this is an attempt on the part of fallen man to overcome the curse of God, to overcome the disharmony that God has placed in society because of its sin, apart from Christ. The only way that we overcome the disharmony, the, 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 the disharmony, the disunity, the chaos that exists in the, in the diversity of humanity is through the unity of the cross. That's it. We don't want that, though. We want that unity that the cross brings without the cross. Okay? This is what critical theories is after. Okay? To redeeming society, according to critical theory, is to eliminate all these structures and to have this utopian harmony and equality that exists everywhere. And man can do that without Christ, you see. That's the central premise. And that's why it is anti-gospel, anti-Christ, anti-Christianity, period. The second problem with this first tenet is that it classifies one as an oppressor without regard to their behavior, which is really quite different from classifying you within a certain people group. Uh, Irish, German, English, Italian, African, uh, Indian, whatever. This is an inappropriate way to classify people because it does not uh, take into account how God classifies him. God does not classify you as an oppressor unless you are actively engaging in oppressing someone. Right? That's how biblical Christianity would define an oppressor. 
Another problem is the fact that this tenet represents just one particular interpretation of human society. This is just one interpretation of human society. It is one grid among many that you can look through in order to interpret society. That you might look through. Now, there's only one right interpretation of creation, one right interpretation of humanity and of human society and of the structures that pagan humans, fallen, rebellious, wicked humans put in place to guide themselves, direct themselves, govern themselves. There's only one right one, and there's a lot of wrong ones. Another problem is the fact that this tenet represents just one particular... Oh, I already said that. Sorry. All right. I have an issue with my Microsoft OneNote. It keeps jumping around on me. Yes, I do have notes for this podcast, as I do for most of my podcasts. I have to keep guardrails up. Otherwise, I, I'm a rabbit hunter, and I love to hunt rabbits, and it doesn't matter if it's rabbit season or duck season. I'm hunting rabbits in all seasons. It can be uh, snipe season for all I care. I'm going to be hunting rabbits. All right. It is the duty of every Christian to interpret society and creation in a way that is that accords with God's interpretation of it. Now, here's a question that I, I thought was interesting as I was thinking about this. What would place me in a dominant oppressor group versus a subordinate oppressed group? What, what would place me there? See, I'm a white guy, but I grew up poor in, in West Virginia. I mean, I was in the fifth grade before I had running water. I lived in the hills of Appalachia. If you've ever seen the movie Coal Miner's Daughter, you've seen how I grew up in the early parts of that movie with Loretta Lynn growing up. I grew up just a little over an hour from Butcher's Holler, which is where she was born and raised. And the way they depict it in that movie is spot on. I see that movie, I see where I was raised and how I was raised. Yet because uh, of some gene in my system, in my body, in my DNA, I'm supposed to be put in the oppressor group? Really? I mean, I, I know what it's like to go a week without hot food, eating food out of a can. Because I had a, a refrigerator broken, or no refrigerator, I had no refrigerator. The landlord promised to have a refrigerator there by the time I moved from West Virginia to New York. And I got there and there was no refrigerator. Um, no way to keep food cold, so I in, we ended up eating food out of cans for a week. Now, yeah, you know, in American in American society, that's just unthinkable. Oh my gosh, how could you, you know, do that? That's just awful, and that was really suffering. Well, it wasn't really suffering. We ate every day. We just had to eat food out of cans. Everybody in this country, and to, in the world, most people. To one degree or another, I mean, privilege is a scale. It's a scale. It's not privileged versus not privileged. It's a, it's a moving target. Some people are more privileged than others. Who defines when you cross the line from being privileged to not privileged? Who gets to set the criteria for that? And why does that person get to select that criteria? And how did that person come up with just that criteria?
See, this is when you start to really get into these theories and and uh, apply some critical thinking to them, you start to run into all kinds of problems, and it's why. If you've interacted with these social justice advocates, guys like uh, Bradley Mason uh, out in in California, the carpenter kid, um, if you start interacting with these guys, it's why. They would just rather blog all kinds of crap, read all kinds of ideas, read all kinds of authors, point all kinds of examples in American society without dealing with the underlying presuppositions when people start hammering on those underlying presuppositions that they bring to this conversation, those guys call you names and run off and hide. They don't want to stand up and have the conversation and answer questions like this, like I just raised. Privilege is a sliding scale. Okay. The Bible lists people groups as well. The Bible talks about rich people. The Bible talks about poor people. The Bible talks about wise, the fool, the adulterer, the fornicator, the homosexual, the liar, the murderer, the greedy, the covetous, the idolater, and, and so on. Talks about all those people. Talks about the barbarian, the Scythian. It talks about the Gentile and the Jew, the slave and the free. It talks about all of these people and recognizes that in fallen humanity, these categories of people exist. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are people who will not starve to death in this life, in their lifetime, and there are people who will. And the, and the people who don't starve to death are, are going to come under a different judgment of God, the judgment of God that God will justly render to them in time, just as the people who starve. Now, do human beings deserve to starve? Are you telling me that as a fallen, rebellious sinner, I have a right to be fed? I have a right not to starve to death. I can come into this world. I can refuse to acknowledge God. I can refuse to acknowledge my Creator. I, I, I can refuse to praise Him, to glorify Him, to honor Him. And I have a right to do that and a right to live and exist. You exist and live to glorify God. The very reason you exist, that thing that you exist to do, you refuse to do. Why should you have a right to even exist? Why should you have a right to eat at all? If, you're, if you are rejecting the God who created you and refusing to acknowledge Him with your entire being. Where does that kind of thinking come from? That is not Christian thinking. That's pagan thinking. All right. That's not Christian thinking. This is part of the issue. This is why we're having such a struggle in the churches right now, helping people stand up to this and recognize exactly what's wrong with it. A lot of people know something's wrong with this stuff. They just don't know what it is. And they don't know what it is because we've done such a poor job teaching them how to think. And I think a lot of us are waking up to that at this point, going, oh my gosh, uh, we've got a lot of work to do, and we can no longer ignore that work. The good thing about the secularization of post-Christian America is that it is going to force us in the churches to put a lot more effort 
and focus on equipping the saints. Because now we have antagonism all around us. It's everywhere. And it's open and it's overt. Not like it was before. Subtle, behind the curtain, uh, flying below the radar. Now, now it's out there in your face. And so we, we realize, okay, we've got to change some things. There's, we don't have a choice. It has to happen. Otherwise, we won't exist. I mean, we'll be meeting in, 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 in basements, in closets uh, in the very near future if we don't do this. And we may end up doing that anyhow. Bottom line is, we've neglected equipping the body. And uh, the good thing is, I think that we're going to turn that corner because it's, we don't have a choice. It's being turned for us, really. All right. <clears throat> in Christ, it is in Christ that these categories and these groups disappear, you see. Because the, the greatest gift of God to humanity, the greatest blessing to humanity, is blind to the classes that, that sin has created amongst us. All right? That's the other thing. The existence of these classes as a result of the curse and the judgment of God also serve as a wonderful example of how the power of the gospel and the cross doesn't consider those classes at all as God dispenses his grace. We think, well, he's only going to dispense his grace to the rich, or he's only going to dispense his grace to the wise, those, of, those who have been in the academy. Or he's only going to dispense his grace to the moral, good to good people, right? The disciplined people, the people who are making a contribution to society, a positive contribution to society, the taxpayer, the business owner, the well-to-do. No, that is not how the gospel works. See, the gospel goes out not to just Jew and Greek, meaning the gospel doesn't go out to just all the people groups. Not only are people groups irrelevant now in Christ, our gender, our sex, male and female, is irrelevant in Christ. He saves not just men, he saves women. He doesn't save just the downtrodden and the poor. He saves the rich. He doesn't save the fool and leave the wise to wallow in his own ignorant philosophy. He saves the wise. Not many, I might add, and not because of their wisdom. God in his wisdom did not use the wisdom of the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Critical theory seeks a unity that is grounded in the kind of arrogant thinking connected with the ancient people at Babel. Man had a desire to be united in their goals, not only independent from God and outside of Christ, but in opposition to God and in opposition to Christ. For the Christian, critical theory is a non-starter. Its sine qua non is human unity, autonomously independent from God, without any reliance whatsoever on God. All right. The second tenet says, oppression is not defined only in terms of violence. Okay, so we're going to redefine oppression. To what? But in terms of dominant groups. Okay, so we're going to redefine oppression 
to include not just violence, but also dominant groups, whites, rich, men, heterosexuals, Christians, Christians, etc., imposing their values on subordinate groups, people of color, the poor, women, LGBTQ, individuals, non-Christians, atheists maybe even, right? So the word oppression in the Bible, lachetz, I think it shows up almost 60 times in the Old Testament. And I'm sure there are other words. I didn't do a word study for this, just so you know. So if you're out there, you know, and you're maybe a Hebrew professor or uh, a scholar, and you just happen to be listening to the rant, I did not do a word study on this. I just did a very quick, brief look at the word for oppression that seems to be the most common. And uh, it shows up almost 60 times in the Hebrew text. Uh, it's defined as to squeeze or to put pressure on oneself. Um, and the response to that pressure or that, and that squeezing is typically to crowd in pain. Okay, we see this word used when Balaam's ass pressed itself against the wall and oppressed or squeezed Balaam's foot and, and Balaam cried out, right? So note that when one group imposes their values on another group, they are said to be oppressing them. This would mean that Christianity is ipso facto an oppressive religion, right? If critical theory carries the day, religion has a problem. Not only that, it's self-defeating, right? Because whose values are being forced on everyone as a result of critical theory? Are they not? Are they not? Are advocates of critical theory not imposing their own values on everybody else? Something that they say that oppressed groups do. Are they not being oppressive themselves? Yes, they are. This is a self-defeating position, folks should be abandoned. Anybody who is honestly thinking critically about these ideas should be able to recognize, wait a minute, I've just shot myself in the head. What in the world am I doing here? Makes no sense. Back to the drawing board. Start over. Yeah, well, I, I would suggest that, yeah, you should start over and you should start with the Word of God and you should end with the Word of God and you should lead with the Word of God and you should stay in the Word of God and never abandon the Word of God and you'll be fine if you do that. Just like the human race at the Tower of Babel did not want anyone telling them what to do or placing limitations on them, so modern man thinks the very same way. What this, what this means, essentially, is that the core of contemporary critical theory is actually very, very old. All right. Now, before I move to the next tenets, um, I want to see how much time I have left. All right. Uh, and then I want to take you to James chapter 2 because uh, there are some concerns in our churches when it comes to things like oppression and favoritism. Um, and I want to talk about that for a second because when we, when we think about uh, this, we, we do have to look inside the covenant community and ensure that none of these ugly sins are rearing their heads in our midst. 
Okay, so James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Do, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who will press you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. There is rampant, rampant partiality going on in the churches today. Not just what James was talking about. We do that in our churches, even the best of our churches, without realizing it. We're doing this, and we can and must do better. We really are doing this. Not only that, not only do we make distinctions between people who have money, people who don't have money, we put people in positions and, and give them privileges and opportunities because they give a lot of money to the church and they have more say over what color the carpet's going to be and the stained glass windows and all of this nonsense. We also show favoritism when it comes to these kinds of issues. I'll get someone's back because they agree with me on all these other things, even though I disagree with them on the thing I'm getting their back for. Or the social justice advocates will all rally around each other and play politics. Uh, won't call each other out, even when we know they're wrong. Um, there's a lot of favoritism, a lot of politics going on in the churches, and James very sternly rebukes it and calls it out as sin. And it is. All right. The third tenet, we should expose and dismantle the values and structures of dominant groups. Racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, transphobia are all forms of oppression that must be dismantled. Yeah, they didn't say ageism. Now, I'm 54 years old now, so... Uh, Kind of worried about ageism. Why, why isn't ageism in here? There's absolutely. Okay, so we should expose it and dismantle these values, right? For, and replace them with what? New values. Values that are not biblical. There's absolutely no such mandate in Scripture for us to engage in these kind of act, actions. Not none. Inside the church, there should be no power structures that are not anchored in Scripture. The elders who are operating under the authority of Scripture. They don't have authority, in inherent authority, as an elder in and of, of themselves. They have authority as they are operating under the truths of Scripture. And this is why we submit to them. Because they represent the Word of God speaking truth into our lives as believers. And we submit. 
if an elder um, is not operating within the uh, confines of Scripture, they don't have authority in that area in which they're operating. An elder cannot tell you, um, you know, don't do something that Scripture doesn't tell you not to do. An elder can't command you to tithe, right? Because Scripture doesn't command you to tithe as a New Covenant believer. So when an elder commands you to tithe, he's commanding you to do something that the Scripture does not command you to do, and therefore he is operating with absolutely no authority whatsoever in that particular case, right? However, elders should strive to consistently operate within the, the confines of Scripture, and as such, when they're doing that, they are the, the authority in the church. And we should be submitting to them because they have been entrusted with the Word of God. It's submitting to your elders who are following Scripture is submitting to God, submitting to Christ, submitting to Scripture. Right? There should be no such thing as, as racism and classism uh, in the churches. Now, sexism, they're going to say not allowing a woman to be a pastor is sexism. Not allowing a woman to lead is sexism. Uh, telling women that they are to be submissive to their husbands, and if they have questions about what's going on at church, they should ask their husbands at home. All of that, according to critical theory, is sexism. Can you see how inconsistent with Christianity critical theory is? All right. Legitimate classes, rich, poor, man, wife, wise, foolish, Jew, Gentile, these, these have been, uh, in terms of the gospel, have been removed for purposes of, of redemption. Right. It doesn't mean I'm not still a man and my wife is, isn't still a woman. Of course, what it means is that the gospel is dispensed by God without respect for what class a person is in. It's, the gospel is classless. It brings us into union with one another. We become united in Christ, one person in Christ, of one mind. Right, not loyal to classes, but loyal to Christ, loyal to the body of Christ. No longer looking at myself as belonging to this class, but first of all, belonging to Christ. And my class now is seen as an accident. I happen to be a German-Irish guy who is regenerated by the power of God and in the body of Christ. All right. Um, <clears throat> this whole thing is a call for, for the religious folks, especially Christians, to help relocate power in society. And we're falling prey to it, even though it's, it's calling us out directly. Now, the people it's calling out are people who are, are liberals, people who... We begin with the denial of the authority of Scripture. Um, and if you're not doing that confessionally, overtly, many people are doing that passively, practically speaking. They're not, when a, when a man and a woman divorce without regard for what Scripture says to them about divorcing, they are in all, for all intents and purposes, denying the authority of Scripture. 
To say that you believe that the Bible is our final authority is absolutely meaningless if you're committing fornication every weekend out at the bars. Many will come to me, Jesus said in that day, and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I, I have no idea who you are. The people that I know, Jesus says, are the people who hear my word and do it. Those are the people I know. The people who who do what you're doing, say you know my word, but you don't do it. I don't know who you are. Same thing with this nonsense. All right. Now, here's a question that I, I want to raise. Imagine with me for just a, a, a minute. What society, human society, what it would, would look like or be like without power structures in place? Think about that for a second. Eliminate all the power structures, which is what this seems to be saying they want to do. They don't want to do that, but what would it look like? Isn't it the case that critical theory does not merely seek to dismantle the values, to deconstruct the values and structures of dominant groups that are in place? They don't want to just do that. You can't just do that. No, really, the, the agenda here is to replace the current values and the current structures with new ones. Make no mistake about it. This is exactly what they want to do. Notice that critical theory has no mechanism for drawing lines between these groups. It's all or nothing. If you want to oppose racism, you must also work to fight homophobia and transphobia. You see, you're either on their side or you're not on their side. You can't pick and choose. It's an all or nothing package. It's an all or nothing ideology. The minute you start picking and choosing, the foundations turn into quicksand. The entire house falls. See, but there are morons running around in, in in these circles who call themselves Christians. Some of them call themselves Reformed Christians, who are trying to do just that: pick and choose the good. There is nothing good here. All right, there's nothing good here. Notice that the New Testament church did nothing even close to engaging in any of these kinds of actions. Nothing. All right, the last point here. Social location determines our access to truth. In particular, oppressed people, here it comes, have special access to the truth through their lived experience, while members of oppressor groups are blinded by their privilege. This disregards the fact that Every individual, regardless of where they're at in life, regardless of their experience, their culture, whatever it is they're going through, it disregards the fact that I am an interpreter of my experience. Every experience gets interpreted. And the question the Christian asks is, are you interpreting your experience the way God interprets it in Scripture? Is that how God interprets your experience on this earth? The God who established boundaries and times and appointed you to your lot 
the lot that you are exactly in right now, this very minute, and me. Is that how I'm interpreting my experiences? Or is this God in heaven more like a deist God who created, who truly risked things, who didn't know the future perfectly, who actually changes and responds to human beings? Is he up there working, trying to get us to fix all this through theories like this? That's the kind of God, if there is a God involved in critical theory, that's the kind of God he is. He doesn't look anything like the God of the Bible. He's a deist. He got the thing going. He walked away. He's not very involved. Maybe a little bit, but not much. Yeah, purposeless evil actually does exist. He didn't quite see that things, he knew it could turn out this way, but he didn't know that it was actually going to turn out this way. And he's working now, because he's really smart, to move us to a better place. This is the God of the people who are behind this theory. If you believe that the power of the gospel is what changes hearts, and it is the solution to all man's woes, and you believe that God is a just God, and that he has cursed human beings for their rebellion in multifarious ways, and that the effects of that curse and the effects of sin span all different types of human experience, then you don't know the gospel. You don't know God. You think you do, you don't. This last tenet is basically making the claim that the knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the truth of this ideology can only be experienced by those who are oppressed. Okay, This is nothing more, philosophically speaking, logically speaking, this is nothing more than special pleading. And on those grounds alone. It undercuts the validity of the argument. It is a textbook example, folks, of special pleading. Additionally, should it also follow that the oppressor has special access to the truth through their own lived experience, while members of the oppressed groups are blinded by their lack of privilege. So if the oppressed have special knowledge of being oppressed, shouldn't the oppressor have special knowledge of, of being an oppressor? Now, this raises the question, well, okay, is it immoral to oppress others? Is it? If you say that it is, the, the only way you can truly ground oppressing others, eventually you're going to have to get back to the God that created human beings in his own image and likeness. That's the God of the Bible. And that's the God that these people are rejecting. Because the God of the Bible has ordered the paths of all men, all people groups, all classes to be exactly where they are right now today. And the only cure for their sin. The only cure for the oppressed and the only cure for the oppressor is Jesus Christ. Humanity will become one in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ have become one with Him and with one another without regard to whatever 
classes we might belong to. Doesn't matter. The gospel goes to all. Grace goes to all different types of classes without uh, distinction in class. Now, even if we accept the claim, and we do not, that the oppressed have special access to truth. Let's just say for a second that that's true. Why should we think that they're going to be honest with the rest of us about what the truth is? They have special access to the truth. They know the truth because they have this special experience that other people don't have. So you have to listen to them. No, no, no. Uh, you have to do a little bit better than that, you see, because there's this thing called trust. Uh, I don't care if you have special access to truth. You ever heard of the CIA? I mean, really? These guys have special access to truth. They're notoriously dishonest. They don't tell us the truth. They lie to us, right? Now, you know, no affront to anyone in the CIA. Uh, we appreciate the work that the government does to keep its citizens safe. Uh, I'm just making a point here. A spy has special access to truth. And spies are deceivers. Why should we think that the oppressed aren't going to deceive us just so that they can switch places with us and now become the oppressor and the privileged? Answer, riddle me that. I mean, seriously. I think that's a, a fair question. All right, Having special access to truth does not guarantee honesty. In, in whose world would that ever hold? And here's the fact. The oppressed do not have special access to truth. They may have special access to things that they've suffered in this life that very few other people have suffered. I mean, I grew up without running water uh, until I, I was in the fifth grade, okay? Not everybody knows what that's like. I know what that's like. Um, how, how does that serve me? Well, uh, I can say that growing up poor and with less privilege probably than most. Now I'm, I have, um, I'm far more privileged than most. I mean, like far, far more privileged than the overwhelming majority of people on the planet. Um, coming coming from where I came from, there is a pinch of a little bit of, of a little bit of guilt when I, you know, and maybe there shouldn't be. But there is. I struggle with it because I know what it's like to do without. Seriously do without. I know my my mother used to make my clothes because we couldn't go buy new clothes. Uh, it was a very, very humble, modest life that I had when, when, when I grew up. And uh, I, I remember things in my life where I, uh, as I came along in business and was able to win awards here, here and there, and I remember one time distinctly having won a, a particular award, and I'm, I was in Manhattan, and this was close to the holidays. So it's a great time to be in New York City. And I'd lived in New York for over 10 years before this had happened, so it wasn't that New York was not new to me at the time, but the situation was certainly new. And as I'm sitting there, or standing there, I walked away 
from the crowd trying to find a quiet place because I really needed a quiet place at that moment to reflect. And I looked out across lower Manhattan, I looked out across into Brooklyn and with the lights of the city and my mind went back to my childhood. It went back to, believe it or not, it went back to the outhouse. It went back to the cutting kindling in the uh, in the winter and carrying in coal and and w drawing water from a hand-drawn well with a bucket. Uh, it went back to watching my grandma on a uh, coal stove that was like a it was one of those stoves that it, it does what an electric stove does. You cook on it. You like several different plates that you cook on it, but it's it's fired by coal. And I used to watch my grandpa fuss with that and get it going and watch her make breakfast and cook biscuits and the whole nine yards. So I know what this this I know what privilege is. I've been on I've been around the scale of privileged. Um and so when you think about critical theory and you think about privilege and oppression and being oppressed, we all have to start as believers. We start with the sovereignty of God. We recognize the sinfulness of man. We recognize that all things uh, happen for God's glory. That is the highest good, the summum bonum. We recognize that. We recognize that we are fallen sinners. We're not broken. We're not just broken. We're broken because of our rebellion. Yeah, we need to be unbroken. But the only way we can be unbroken is for God to rip out this heart of stone and to put in a heart of flesh. I'm not a victim of sin. I'm a perpetrator of sin. Period. I'm not a victim of rebellion. I'm a perpetrator of rebellion. But for grace, I would continue to shake my fist at God and not acknowledge Him. And I would go on my own way looking to fix my problems myself and being arrogant enough to think that I could do it. And if there's anything critical theory is guilty of, and then there's a ton, it's arrogance. The very idea that human beings can act autonomously on their own, working together just like the ancients at Babel, to become one and create a utopia apart from God, solving their problems, throwing off the curse of sin. That's what this is about. God cursed man for falling 6,000 years ago. Man thinks he can escape that curse. He can escape the consequences of sin. And he can do it apart from Christ. The only way you or I will escape the consequences of sin is to be found in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Reformed Rant. I hope I've said something that's been uh, edifying, encouraging, uplifting, challenging, uh, that will provoke you to stop and think uh, more critically about these issues. If you have any uh, comments, questions uh, that you want to leave, if you're listening to the program in the Anchor app, you can do that inside the app itself. I don't know how. 
but I know you can. Uh, or you can go over to Reformed Reasons, um, which is my website, and leave a comment there. I mostly just do the rants these days. I used to blog a lot more. I have just don't have the as much time today these days to do that. And then there's uh, Reformation Charlotte Facebook Facebook pages. Facebook pages. There are two of them. Uh, if you wanna if you wanna uh, join there, there's also the Bible Thumping Wingnut. Uh, Facebook page and network, which is the podcast is uh, on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. So uh, a lot of opportunities for like-minded folks to go in, have great discussion, learn, grow, um, and have something in common with, with people. If, if you're worried about these things, things disturbed about them, you're not alone. There's a lot of us who are. Keep the faith, stay in the fight, continue to swing the, the sword of the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ until he's done with you. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Whatever you